0: this is the analyzing anfield podcast on the blood red channel bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of liverpool fc
1: hello welcome to this week's episode of analyzing anfield i'm josh williams and i'm joined over zoom once again by most stewards so anybody who has any issues with that you can send your hate mail to most stewards at live.com
0: <laughs> <laughs> i mean to be honest hate mail is probably a bit strong but i think it's yeah, interesting it because on the one hand i i'm happy that people are so desperate for our content and that can only be a good thing but also guys we have lives like we have <laughs> like I'm I'm recording this here from my lovely parents home uh, in Ken hence the fancy picture behind me uh, I had to go and do the sun thing and go and visit family it's what we all do but I'm here ready to talk Liverpool
1: yeah I mean I thought these days were over I've got to be honest it's a shame that I'm back in front of a screen again both needs most um and to be fair, I owe you one to consider, and I um I just done, did a runner last week, really, didn't I? I, I did say that we were going to appear on the pod, and I completely forgot that I was going to Amsterdam. So uh, we didn't actually appear on a podcast last week. So this is um, making up two weeks in advance um, with a Zoom podcast. So apologies <laughs> I mean, for that. We-
0: it's all right. People. I, I I was on the pod last week. So if you didn't catch me with Dave Comerford talking about Trent last week, go out there. It's out there. So, I mean, we, we have some kind of content to hold on to. But yeah, Liverpool have been busy in our absence. And it's almost like they blessed us with that last performance. Otherwise, the show, the tenor of the show could have been very different.
1: Yeah, well, we do have a, an international break at the minute. Um the forty eighth international break of the season so far, so it gives us a bit of a, a bit of a time to take stock, which is always nice. Uh, we can talk about Brentford a few other talking points around certain players, certain transfer links as well. So plenty to get through. Um, but if we if we just touch on Brentford, and uh, not we won't stay on it particularly long, but if we just touch on it, I thought it would be a bit trickier. To be honest, the XG suggests it was trickier. But in terms of the scoreline, it's just a really comfortable 3-0 win.
0: Yeah, it's funny because in the week leading up to it, every, people kept asking me, oh, do you think we'll win? And my normal instinct when Liverpool play at home is to say, yes, Liverpool win. But every time someone asked me that question, I kind of paused because it was like, I know how good Brentford can be. And I've watched them play at Anfield a few times and go away feeling kind of unlucky. And the scoreline didn't really reflect what happened in the game. And they're probably saying the same again after this one. But it was a weird game because I think first half, you can see both teams had their game plan. Ours wasn't really working. We weren't quite clicking. The balls weren't quite going to the right man. There was a couple of times where um, someone made a run one way and the ball went the other way. And it all looks a bit disjointed. But we stuck with it, kept patient. The chances kept coming. And then we finally started to take away. And that was my main takeaway from the game, that element of when we're at home in particular, we still have that aura to be able to say, look, even when it's not going perfectly, we can still get the job done.
1: Yeah, strange games, to analyse. Um, looking at the numbers attached to the performance, it doesn't look like a deserved win. And t- to be fair, t- so far this season, we've deserved a lot of our wins, really. But this, this one was um, in terms of the XG, 1.7 for Liverpool and 1.6 for Brentford. So both teams creating decent chances there, really. um, Similar value chances. Liverpool posted 17 shots. Brentford posted 16. Um, Liverpool dominated the ball, but it was only 59%, uh, which is a little bit less than usual. So it, it is weird because it felt relatively relatively comfortable during the game i think there was a bit of unease before we got the first goal first breakthrough um but generally i felt pretty safe watching it um and it's weird the the weird thing about this and what one of the things we would have touched on last week would have been when we played New luton um that felt like a terrible performance that game it felt like nothing stuck. It felt like we were all over the place, well below par, and things like that. But if you check the numbers after the game for that performance, in terms of the chances that we created, we created about 3xg. And what we give away was less than one. So it's really weird how that works out. And, and how that. This is why I think numbers are so valuable in this sport now. Because, like, it can make you yeah, almost double, like, double taken. And, and, um, rethink your own assessments of what what happened during the game, really.
0: And also, I think for the players and the manager in particular, they can tell themselves the stories as to say, well, okay, Luton was just one of those days he didn't go for us. And to be fair to Jurgen Klopp, that's precisely what he said in his uh, um, post-match press conference and in his kind of the embargo version of his pre-Brentford press conference. It was very much like, we're not going to hammer these guys because of this Luton performance, because, It just happens that way sometimes. You'll do everything right except the goal. And that kind of level of not too high, not too low was good. In contrast to the Toulouse performance, which it was more about the application, the intensity, the defensive dog work, the duels, that wasn't there. And that's the kind of thing that's a non-negotiable for this manager and should be for every manager. So I think in terms of how good we were, there are different criteria you can look at for what is important. And yeah, I think when you look at the the Brentford game, I think the thing for me with the Brentford chances is that there was never a concerted period of Brentford pressure. They had the one really early on, um, I think it was a set piece one, where the ball just kind of went past the post and someone stretched out and couldn't quite stretch to it. That was probably actually, uh, XG-wise, quite a high value chance, but it kind of came and went and we didn't really see it. Then there's obviously the Brian and Bemo where he's through and to makes a fantastic save. And then there's a couple more towards the end of the game where, Alice, where they have a few corners, uh, by which point where it's already 3-0. And obviously that context matters as well as to when yeah. these chances are happening. So I think in terms of the overall element of control we had in the game, it's always our bugbear control. I think we were able to have it for a lot of the period of time in this game. And it was that control that allowed us... The time and patience to get it right. Um, obviously, in some individual performances as well, I feel it would be very churlish of us not to mention Costa Simic as simply because he, he basically had he went from having one of his worst games to having his best game in the space of like three days. And <laughs> I think that takes a, it takes a lot of fortitude uh, inside, but it also kind of shows why he could be so frustrated at times because it's like that player's there. Can we
1: not see him a little bit more? Yeah. It feels a bit like he's um, maybe a kind of confidence player, potentially. Um, maybe he needs that kind of boost, again, that he got from maybe joining Liverpool at the very start or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I think he does deserve a shout because, obviously, technically in FPL terms, and this, this matters because he's in my team. <laughs> um, <laughs> he did register two assists and a clean sheet. Um, we haven't actually done a... Um, an update for that so far this season. I would do it right now if I had my phone on my hand, but it's over there on charge. Nah, but... no,
0: we're, we're all good. We, 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 we don't need to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Which is code for saying my team has been doing terribly. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think us, I think what it is as well, I believe that there was a conversation had between him and club after Toulouse because he got hooked at half time in that game. And it wasn't just the fact that he'd uh, play made a mistake for the first goal. It was the, the mistake he made for the first goal was identical to the mistake he made for the goal that Leicester scored at home in the League Cup. Literally, if you put the two of them next to each other, it's exactly the same thing. And that becomes a problem. When you're making the same bad mistakes, that's when someone has to intervene. And I believe that there was very much, like, Costa he looks like one of those guys where when he's absolutely in control of what he knows he needs to do, he can play well. And we knew that he was going to be facing an aerial bombardment against Brentford. I believe the first aerial duel that he had to face came after 22 seconds and the second one came after 55 seconds. So it was literally, this is going to be you, mate. And he was ready for it. And he was able, up to it, because, I mean, you mentioned the assist. I think defensively, he was fantastic. Like, there was many times when he was aggressive at the right times, but also able aware of what was around him and didn't leave his uh, defensive partners in the lurch or anything. So it was a mature, aggressive performance from Costas. And again, I hope that he's someone that he can take something from into the next game or so.
1: Yeah, I think on, on the ball, it feels like we're still waiting for that game where he goes a full 90 minutes without making one random unforced error on the ball. Um, it feels like we're still waiting for that. But in terms of what he offered value-wise, in terms of just just as his overlap, and I felt was important. Um, like, if you look at the game against Luton, again, even though we created chances worth, like, 3XG, one of the main issues I felt against... Against Luton was was obviously he went for Gomez in um, Simagas's place. Yeah. Gomez is right-footed, and he's a centre-back, so that resulted in Liverpool keeping more of a safety net intact, maybe. But they struggled to width, and they struggled when it comes to like overlapping, and because Trent wasn't yeah. overlapping on the opposite side, I don't think, Um because he was cutting inside as kind of like the centre mid that we're seeing lately. And it, it, it made me realise like what an attacking unit looks like when nobody overlaps. And it's really weird. It's proper weird. Like you you, you underestimate how important that element is. And once we introduced Simacass again, like obviously against Brentford over the weekend, mm-hmm. that was that element was restored. And I think it's actually that important that um I think until Robertson's out, unless you absolutely have to, with, with Gomez, I think Simercass is, is definitely the the solution there, personally, for me, it has to be a left footer, and it has to be someone who, who, who will overlap. And um, I think yeah. I think Simicast is the only option we've got for that, really. Until yes,
0: way. I think I think the other thing that factors in is the potential return of Curtis Jones, because I do think that he's got again the, the the intelligence to know when he can do that, and it's not his natural game again, but he knows that it's important to offer width into the game so he can do it when he needs to. I think the thing with Joe is that he's very aware of what he can and can't do. So even if you, like I say, if you just look at the the range of um, stats between Joe at Luton uh, and and Costas uh, against Brentford. So um, Costas made 10 crosses, three of which were accurate. Joe made one. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but my, meanwhile Joe um, only misplaced four of his passes uh, 91%, Costas was at 85%, but Costas made three key passes to Joe's one um, and again it just shows, um, yeah, Joe lost possession nine times, Costas 20 but again a lot of those are in terms of taking risks and being in advanced positions and yes you can say it's the difference between being a home and away, but I do think L- Luton are the kind of team who away from home Liverpool would try to play as they do at home so I don't think it's as big a difference so yeah I think in terms of that game part of his game being natural then it makes sense to have Costas in there when you're playing a team what well, the fact that the next game is away at City does complicate things somewhat because it's like well that might be one of those where you have to or maybe be looking to curb the attacking instincts but We'll have to wait and see. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel,
1: yeah. In terms of all the other individuals, um, who are kind of trending for the season, really, but um, shined in particular against Brentford, Virgil van Dijk. Um, it's nice to see him back. Welcome to the party, Virgil. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it really is. Uh, it's funny as well because. I was sitting in the upper main for the Brentford game. So it's very much the coach's position. So you can literally see the teams move together as a unit. And yeah, so you get a real, real sense of uh, how the team are being managed. And he was managing a lot of what was going on in front of him. And also it's a great view for those big booming Crossfield passes to Rosala, which are back by the way, like, That's one of the things that we probably didn't see a lot of last season and is now back with a vengeance. And when he's doing that, that tells you that he's confident in himself and in his body in a way that maybe I I still think that was his biggest problem last year. He wasn't confident in himself to be able to do the Virgil things that he knows that he needs to do. And now that confidence is back. And not only is the confidence from him back, the fear is back in the opponents. And I think that's as much a part of it as anything else.
1: He does look good. You can't deny Um He looks back to himself, really. He looks like he's just governing what are supposed to be, tricky defensive situations. He looks like he's just kind of handling them, taking care of them with ease. Um, right place to be at all times. He seems to be there. We know how good he is in the air. Um, in terms of his crossfield diagonals as well, obviously the one in particular against um Brentford that was just absolutely on the money, like pinpoints and the, the trajectory of it as well. Mm. It like it, it went straight in a straight line and there was no loft. It was just like gliding across the sky almost really, um right in Salah's path. And I think Salah actually killed it a little bit by his, the way in which he tried to set up Darwin. And then he 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 kind of um It was like a weird volley kind of thing that he he tried to, but he didn't really need to do that. He kind of misjudged the flight, but in terms of Van Dijk just looking good, it it obviously bodes well for Liverpool to have the best centre-back in the world, who is still the best centre-back in the world for me, Um, just kind of back on form. and I tweeted during the game, or might have been after the game, that I think some of it is definitely just kind of confidence coming back. Some of, them, some of it is trust in his body. Some of it is no doubt pre-season and the fact that we benefited from a full one and things like that. But I also just think, I mean, how many times did we say last season on this podcast that, you know, the the, the midfield was making the defence look bad? And if you think of last season's defence, or every single defender collectively fell off a cliff, really. If you think of, like, match-up suddenly looked, good, looked awful. Gomez suddenly looked awful. Van Dijk looked human. Um, Canate had a few moments where he just kind of fell over his feet. Um, And all of that, in my opinion, was stemming from predominantly the midfield, but also the front press as well. You know, obviously we lost Sadio Mane. Firmino was no longer playing as much of a part as previous years. And the, 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 the back four was just kind of left open to fight alone have you seen that meme where the fella gets out a sword at like a million people running towards him it it (laughs) felt a little bit like that to be honest um and it feels like over the summer Klopp's obviously bought four new midfielders left five Mm go and his forwards are now pressing a lot Do nunez obviously a lot better on defensive side and things like that and it gives your defenders a platform to to grow in confidence and you know, this is kind of why over the past couple of years, Man United centre-backs have been a mess, looking like Bambi on ice and things like that. Yeah. It's because they, they struggle to get that foothold over the course of the season because they're constantly putting out
0: fires. And the, the other big thing that we have that they don't is defenders who are comfortable playing high line, which allows you to squeeze a base, which Man United absolutely do not have. But yeah. you're right. I do, I do think it's all a part of the system. So... I mentioned the uh, Brian and Bremo chance where he was through, clean through and Anderson made a great save. That was happening twice a game last season. I honestly can't think of another time it's happened so far this season where someone has been that clean through on goal. And that is the midfield. That is the fact that we are winning the ball further up the pitch. Um, and when we are losing the ball high up the pitch, we are not as open. So we're, the player we're... we're we're able to move in a shape that allows us to recover. And yes, we still sometimes look a bit slow in that recovery. There are some players who aren't necessarily the quickest and certain configurations of the midfield can, that can look like an issue. But in general, we're able to hold them up. And uh, another fellow who's taken a bit of criticism over the course of the time is Liverpool, uh, Wataro Endo. Um, There's been lots of People saying different things about his performance. Personally, I thought he was good. But the thing that I liked the most out of everything was the tactical fouls. He was a genius at tactical fouls against Brentford. I think he made four or five. Never once in those fouls looked like getting a yellow card. Obviously, there's the one where he could have got a red card, but didn't. But the little fouls all around the halfway line all actually stopping counter-attacks, but not really looking like they were stopping counter-attacks. And I think that is as much a part of his game as having high duel numbers. And some people have looked at his numbers for duels and said, well, he's in a lot of them, but he's not winning a lot of them. And there's winning and losing So duels, in my opinion. So there's winning duels where you get in there, you get the ball and you come away with the ball. And then there's another one where you stop them from doing what they want to do. You stop the man from running through you. So you may not win the ball, but he's got to pass it or he's got to go back towards his own goal. And that allows everybody else time to get into position. It's that part. It's the delaying of the counter attacks in whatever way, shape, or form is the real key role in that. Uh, it's a real key part of that role. And I think against Brentford, he showed that he can do it.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting take, actually, because that that obviously kind of suggests that his his fouls were intentional in in your in your belief.
0: Yes, yeah, some of the like there was a couple I can think of that absolutely were, and it was like he went into it knowing that if I win the ball, great, but if I don't win the ball, this guy's not getting past me. And I yeah. think that's the mentality you have to have as a six. And some of the things we struggle with McAllister is when he's making those tactical fouls, he makes it dead obvious. Like he'll literally be like holding on to a guy's shirt as he's running past. Yeah. Like, come on, man! You're not going to get away with those. Whereas that, I know that's, definitely that's, true,
1: yeah.
0: I don't know if it's he's just a little bit more, a little bit more from doing it for a few more years in that position or what. But what I saw against Brentford, if that can continue, then yeah, he's going to be a real asset.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I feel like there's th- thinking about it now. I feel like there's maybe something in the fact that McAllister missed out on that day due to an accumulation of yellows. And Endo committed more fouls than anybody on the pitch, but didn't even get a single yellow, which (laughs) I think is interesting because he's probably probably doing it, as you say, under the radar. But if you look at the season so far, um, of all the players who've played at least two full matches, um, Endo is third in the league for fouls per 90. Now, usually um, you would kind of put that down to like, you know, he's, he's off the pace or whatever, but it, it it's definitely an interesting take to suggest that he kind of knows what he's doing. And I wouldn't put it past him considering he's like, you know, he's a, he's a veteran, he's a, he's a captain. Yeah. Um, okay. he's accustomed to playing in like a uh, transition game kind of dynamics considering he's, you know, spent m- most of his career in the Bundesliga and stuff. So, um, that's definitely going to consider the yeah, interesting show, like,
0: Yeah. And I mean, there are some elements where he is still figuring it out and, I mean, I'm not saying that every single one of them was on purpose. There may have been times when he looked, he tried to get it and didn't. But again, it's about if you can't get the ball, then don't let the ball and man go past you. And I think there are times when he's still kind of getting used to knowing which part, where where's his space to mark and how to mark his space and who to kind of shepherd him towards and stuff like that. But his overall defensive six instincts will see him through. And again, it's almost like to the opposite of McAllister who is missing those six instincts but has the kind of the skills, uh, the skill set, the passing, the tackling, the inception ability because obviously numbers wise, McAllister is doing the sixth job as good, if not better than the 2 uh, hundred pounds fellas who moved in Kaysedo and Declan Rice. So I think if you've got between the two of them, Uh, everything you need in the six. So maybe they could just, you know, help each other out a little bit, learn off each other, and then we'll have two very good ones.
1: Yeah, well, Liverpool's decision, you know, at the time, to to basically stick with what they've got and, and kind of sign essentially three number eights and a six who is 30 and has never really played, and never played in Europe at the time. So it was quite a risk. But I think the way in which Liverpool... I've navigated the season so far. Obviously, we're one point behind Manchester City, despite everyone thinking that we don't have a six. Um, so, we're certainly doing it differently. Um, one player... Another player who we can touch on, I think, before we kind of move towards that kind of state of play is Cody Gapo I think. Um, he started the game, obviously, a few injuries. Uh, I think Gravenberg was out, Jones was out, McAllister was suspended. So... Kind of needs must. Um, I think he played all, okay. Played 82 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a book coming. And I think it's it's kind of like... I, I said this week on Redman TV, and maybe it's quite harsh, right? But when, when we're talking about versatile players, if you think about what a versatile player is, a versatile player is someone who you should be able to play technically anywhere. And he delivers a 7 out of 10. Like a Gerard or like a Milner or somebody like that. That's what versatility is. The weird thing about Gapo, and I do think he's versatile by the way, the weird thing about Gapo is he's currently kind of painting the picture where he plays almost like no matter where you play him, he he doesn't shine. <laughs> he kind of, do you see what I mean? It's, yeah. It's I,
0: I, I, I get what you mean, and that technically <laughs> looking at his performances is true. I mean, I, I predicted, suspect, slash suspected that he would play in midfield in this game as well. Obviously, there was a chance of Harvey Elliott, but I feel like knowing the way that Brentford were going to play, his size uh, yeah. was actually going to get him in the team above everything. And the thing that I've always said about Gakpo, I, I think is still the case, in as much as he's still being asked to do this, that, <clears throat> and the other. Like we thought that his he thought his role was going to be. For me, no. Like there was a long period where it looked like we were grooming him to do that. That was going to be your role. You're going to be the number nine, the false nine, and we're going to have Diaz and Salah and Jota and Nunes, who was playing wide left at that point. We're all going to be coming in, and then that, and then Nunes got his act together. He became the number nine, and so then he had to do something else. And then earlier on in the season, when we were still a little bit unsure about our midfield stocks, he was playing there. He was doing the job there. He wasn't the first choice there. He was one who could, not should, play there. And I don't think we've ever given him the real tools to do what he's supposed to do. Like, again, I think he's played half, um, maybe 45 minutes and as a left winger this season and two substitute appearances. Like, I understand that if you're watching the game, and particularly there was moments in the Brentford game in the first half where he was literally standing watching play. He might as well have been watching it alongside me. Like, he didn't know what he was supposed to do. He didn't know how and where he could affect the game. But then there were moments where you you could see him in midfield, the plan. It was for him to pick up the ball and drive towards it, draw defenders towards him, and then move the ball off into space for other players. Like, that's the benefit of having him in, in midfield but I think I only saw him do that one or two times. And I feel for him. Like, yes, he's 24. So that's meant to be old in football years. And he has been playing football for a long time. But most of his football was in that position that we haven't really used him in yet. And so I'm going to hold off full judgment of him until that period where we're actually give we've either given him the role that he's used to or given him a role and stuck with it. Because we haven't done either yet, and mm. maybe he's not. Maybe he's not um, playing well enough to, to to grab a role, and maybe that's what Klopp will be saying to him: "You've got to make your role." But I don't think we're helping him really, to be honest. See,
1: see the, the issue with that though, the issue with what you've said there is that would suggest he's not versatile. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think he might have been signed as a player. Who almost didn't really have a fixed spot. And I think he's been signed as like a um Swiss Army knife, if you like, where he can literally play wherever we need him to a decent level. Um and not really be too 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 limited. Um but so far he, he doesn't look at home anywhere. And I'm, I'm not even sure if um if I would prefer it if like say for example, Rashford for Man United. Sometimes Rashford plays on the right, sometimes he plays on the left, sometimes he plays up front. When you watch Rashford, it's quite obvious that he is at his best when he's on the left. Yeah. With Gakpo, one of the interesting things so far is just he's played as a false nine, he's played as a left-sided forward, he's played as a left-sided eight. It's not even clear yet like what he prefers and if you was to give him a one in the team, where exactly that would be, I'd probably side slightly towards He's probably looked best as a as a false nine, I think. But for me, I Nunes mean, is, the, is the future for that spot. So- again,
0: though, like, all right, okay, that's fair to a certain extent. Um, in terms of the versatility thing, I don't think that ever comes overnight, particularly, again, for a 24-year-old. Like, he, they might say he has the potential to do this, he has the potential to do that, he has the potential to do this. That doesn't mean he's going to be able to do it straight away. It's still going to take time. And I think that, like, if we're still having the same conversation uh, this time next year or at the end of next season, then it's valid. I think we've seen how long it takes players to get used to what Liverpool do. If you're asking him to do three, get used to three things instead of one thing, it's going to take longer. So, again, I have some patience with him around that. In terms of where I think he's best, think about what was his best performance for Liverpool. I instantly go to Man United at home, 7 0. Yeah, I do as well. On the left. What was he doing? <laughs> Cutting in from the left, scoring a goal with his right foot. The kind of, I remember at the time we were saying, this is the goal that we think he's going to become a Gakpo goal because he was talking about how much he studied under Thierry Henry. And that was a very Thierry Henry goal. I vividly remember myself saying that. And since then, how much has he played there? Hardly any. Like, we have to, and maybe I'm just being a little bit devil's advocate on this one, but I do think it's important to recognise when we are helping players and when we aren't. And last year, there was a lot of uncomplimentary football where we weren't helping each other. And we've already said the effect of Virgil van Dijk, and Virgil has been playing Liverpool for a long time, and how important it is that everyone else has settled than him. So I think that that matters for Cody. I, I still think that he's doing enough good things to say that, oh, well, we can't play him. I do think that it will help him immeasurably if he's playing in one position between now and the end of the season. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel.
1: Yeah, it's, it's definitely one to watch. I, I, still, I still like him as a player. Um I don't have any major issues towards him yet. And it's not a case of like when he's included in the starting eleven, like roll my eyes or anything like that. No. Um you know I think he's I think he's got a lot of quality and it's it's just kind of like it's it's a bit of a first world problem. <laughs> I think <laughs> at the minute. Obviously Liverpool doing well in all the competitions and things. Um lots of competition for places yes. and and just hasn't grabbed the shirt yet, whenever he's been given the opportunity. Um, and if if you're right, that his best spot is on the left. One of the issues with that, and this is the issue that we all talked about when he was first linked, because we were all kind of like Cody Gapo. The issue is you've got Luis Diaz over there, and you've got Diogo Jota over there, and they both get minutes regularly over there. So Mm-hmm. it's going to be, to have three in one spot, you, you are, you're you going back to Rashford, you're going back to Man United with Garnacho over there, Ronaldo, Martial, Sancho, yeah. Pogba. They all wanted that side. Not a good thing. So it's one to keep an eye on. I don't think it's, as I said, I don't think it's that big of a problem. It's one of them, no, that is definitely a throwing point. And mm-hmm. I think it's very, I think it's very analysing Anfield as well because he's like, yeah. you know, he, he is a bit of a tactical puzzle. And I think when it comes to Nunes I feel like we provided quite a a bit of like like a future glimpse for Nunes when everything was going badly I think feel like we kind of painted them as like this is what's going to happen with Gachpo I think it's a little bit less clear mm. but without while also still throwing in there he's quite obviously very good it's just kind of like mm, I don't know it's 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 an interesting one. it's a kind of open-ended
0: question yeah, I'm, I mean, the, the Man United comparison is an apt one. And I think the way around it is that over time, they will be all comfortable switching positions and getting to a point where it's not like they're all useless unless they're in their best position. And that's something that Man United are suffering with. I believe that we can adapt. I think if you think about Jota in particular, I think that he he's starting to get, a little bit more, um, I think every time he plays centrally, he looks a little bit better than he did last time. Some of the things that, some of the issues he had, particularly around some of his link up play, I think he's actually come on leaps and bounds in some of that stuff. So it's not so much like we're just waiting for him to score as it has been previously, always <laughs> not doing anything. So that's something that can develop. But yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the balance, isn't it, between having good options to bring off a bench and having depth. But then also, like like you say, if everyone wants to play in the same place, then that can be an issue. But I, I, I back you again to to work it out.
1: Yeah, so we kind of round up the podcast with a talk about, I suppose, the Premier League, the uh, the state of play at the minute. Things are looking good, mate. Uh, we've got we've got obviously Manchester City after the break, which will be interesting, uh, and obviously it's twelve thirty kickoff. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, 12 games in, Liverpool are one point behind top of the table, um, above Arsenal on goal difference. Um, Things are looking good. I mean, when it comes to a title challenge, you know, where we're going to be in a couple of months' time. How are you how are you kind of weighing it up now? Because I think we've kind of said a few times on this podcast it's difficult to weigh up just how good this Liverpool team is so far. We can't keep saying that after thirty eight games. Right. Mate. We're going to have to make a prediction eventually. So,
0: okay, well, all right. There are certain indicators that I think are definitely positive and lead me to believe that a top three finish should be what happens. Where we where in that top three it's still, it could be any of them. Like at this stage of the season, I'd say we could be in any position in the top three, but I think it's highly likely we will be in the top three. And we've seen enough and we've played enough of the good teams to know where we are in that respect. Um, Two things jump out immediately to me. I know we're talking about the league in particular, but Liverpool have lost two games in all competitions this season, which is less than every other Premier League team. Like, so in some ways it's good we didn't do this last week because there'd probably been a little bit more um <laughs> a little bit more criticism, a little bit more madness around the team. But it's a really important thing to remember. In all competitions, Spurs have lost three games, City have lost four games, I believe Arsenal have lost three games, we've lost two. And one of those was with nine men that we absolutely should not have lost. Uh, and
1: I, the second one, by the way, was was just, I mean, we're already through in that competition. <laughs> yeah,
0: so it's exactly. It's, it's, it's an expendable defeat. And in some yeah, ways, yeah. the nature of the reaction, it was a defeat that produced a reaction from the manager. So sometimes you need those kind of games along the ground. So even though that's one thing, the other thing, and the thing that I think shocked me most about this season, we've got the best defensive record in the Premier League. Yeah, I, I, I
1: realised that earlier in the week and I was like, hang on a minute. I had to check yeah. the choice.
0: And, and if you go back and listen to a lot of the pundits, uh, not just Liverpool, but uh, Premier League pundits at the start of the season, when uh, Arsenal were doing really well and they were like, is Arsenal or Liverpool going to be the challenger for City? And lots of people said, well, Liverpool look all over the place defensively. It's Arsenal look a little bit more solid. And that was at the point where there was occasional goals, like obviously the Bournemouth's goal where there was a mistake that led to a goal. Newcastle's goal where there was a mistake that led to a goal. I think both of those were trend, by the way, but we'll, we'll gloss over that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, and so you can see people were making that decision based on early on and based on last season, thinking, oh, well, they've not fixed that yet. Well, as we were saying previously, with Virgil van Dijk and the midfield, it looks like a lot of that has been fixed. I think It's not just the fact that we're not conceding a lot of goals, but our XG against is consistently low. We are stopping opponents getting into position a lot more. And that hopefully is sustainable. Because the other thing about that, we've got the best defensive record in the league. And yet we have chopped and changed our defence more than any other time I can think of. Like literally, I don't remember the last time we played the back four, two games in a row. So the fact is that if we're not relying, apart from obviously Van Dyke and Allison, we're not relying on individuals to bail us out time and time again. As a unit, we look more um, secure, and we've already talked about the Rich embarrassment of Riches up front. Put those two together, that's the title challenge.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think um, I think there's a very definite top three. For me, I'll be amazed if the top three isn't City, Liverpool, Arsenal, and some other. Um, they are the only teams for me that can win the title this season, and I think Liverpool have the best attack of the three. Um, I think Liverpool have the worst defense of the three, but it's nowhere near like the worst defense, as in like you know, a, a massive problem or a massive limitation. Mm-hmm. Liverpool's defence is not as bad as people suggest it is. Uh, if you look at the numbers again, it is it's it's it is similar. You've kind of got the, ta- the, the top three separate a little bit. Then you've kind of got a two of Chelsea and Newcastle. Then kind of Villa in like a weird place on their own. And then almost the rest a little bit. That's kind of, the, that's, that's not how the table looks, but that's how it looks in terms of, you know, underlying numbers and stuff like that. And the bottom three is obviously just kind of Sheffield United, Burnley and Luton they're probably going to go down um but yeah title wise I, I am growing in confidence every week that Liverpool I've, I've I've, kind of got the makeup to do it again if, if you think of what we had when we won the league mm-hmm. you know we did have we had Alison Becker in goal who was a massive massive difference maker and will just win points on his own we had the best sense that I have in defence and we've still got that, with with, with Virgil van Dijk, who looked back on form again. And we had a real, you know, really threatening, multifaceted attack that, that, that could score goals in kind of any game. And alongside that, we also had, like, set pieces and things like that. We've obviously got that. And then all the little nice dynamics around that, in terms of just, since Alexander Arnold being in the team, The midfield is fresh in the right lines. The game of Arguably, we got more goals in midfield than we did a few years back. So, I think you know I've said a few times on this podcast over the years. For me, you are as you're only as good as your players for the most part. I think Klopp is a bit special in the sense that he kind of also adds to that dynamic, but like a Guardiola does. But even if it was just kind of players up against each other with no managers involved, I think Liverpool probably have the the top three a top three first eleven in the league. Uh yeah. so I think Liverpool are definitely going to finish in the top three this season. But in terms of a title charge, I actually think it's it's doable as well, yeah. But it, it's just more to do with whether City almost starts to make it unfair, which they do have the <laughs> the the power to do. And and Guardiola we know is just kind of almost guaranteed on his own to just guarantee around ninety points. Um which is a bit annoying but it could be a, a really exciting title race, really compared to previous yeah. years.
0: And also, uh, in the, I know that this seems a little bit churlish and maybe a little bit long sighted, but I like the fact that we're playing City away before we're playing them at home, because that means that yeah. we can draw away and it's still a very good result, because we can then make up the points against them in the home game. If we've already had the home game. I mean, I think of the last time we were going for the title, 21-22, when it was around April, I believe, the away game. And it was very much like we needed to beat them to get that advantage. And it's a difficult thing knowing you have to win at the Etihad as opposed to knowing that you can be happy with a draw. It's a very different mindset. And it's just those 2 or 3 or 4% of extra having to go for it, having to take a risk, which can end up being a defeat. And I think if we've got enough space after this game to kind of wear whatever result. I mean, I think that even if we lost it, we wouldn't be out of contention for the title, but any points we can get are good, knowing that we've got the hand game in our back pocket later in the season.
1: Yeah, to be honest, that feels like it hasn't been the case for a few years now. Um, I think the last time that happened off the top of my head, it might have been when Coutinho scored to win it. I'm, I'm probably wrong in saying that, but it does feel like every season, that kind of decisive title, deciding game, is at the Etihad uh, yeah. rather than Anfield. So, yeah, I agree, especially if you look at Liverpool's level this season at Anfield. We, we do look kind of untouchable, even to the extent where Brentford delivered a decent performance under you know under the surface and they end up beating, get, getting beat 3-0. So, um, that's definitely one to watch as well, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure that, like, I'm, I'm trying to double-check it now, but I'm pretty sure that Liverpool, as of right now, uh, on course for about, I think it was about 85, 86 points at their current pace. Um, and and you've got to throw in there as well. That's including so many red cards in, in, in a few of these games. <laughs> and we've had games where, I mean, we were literally set it inches away from getting it. Like if you think of Gravenberg against Brighton, yeah, when you think of the Luton game where we generate TXG and, and score once in the last kick of the game, and it feels like we're ironing out loads and loads of things. It feels like we're nowhere near optimal yet, nope, um, not peaking yet or anything like that. So, there could be a ninety-point season in there, and any team that delivers a ninety-point season challenges for the title. So, things are looking up. Things are looking better than last season. Safe to say.
0: Yeah, and I'm, again, I'm it's like. I think we, we we can't say that we've been lucky with injuries either because we've had to deal with players in and out a lot. And that hasn't derailed things. Uh, obviously, there's a couple of guys who would make a massive difference if they weren't around. I'm not going to mention them because I don't want to jinx it, but you all know who I'm talking about. Um, but the fact is, is that we are able to put out a different eleven and still be the same team. And I think that's such an underrated element of sustaining good play over the course of a season. And I think that's what we can do.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, mate. Um, But we'll kind of round up there, I think. Um, Next week, we will be back again. (laughs) I can promise you that one. I will be anyway. I don't know about you, Mo.
0: (laughs) No, no, no. This This is the last of my gallivanting, if you can even call it that.
1: Yeah, hopefully we'll be back in person as well. Um, But, yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Mo.
0: No problem. Always always a good time.
1: (laughs) And uh, we'll be back next week. So, see you then.
0: You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.